Turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at the case of the perplexed prophet. You know, theologians have wrestled with some crazy questions over the years. Like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? The hair and fingernails keep growing in heaven? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? The latest head-scratcher is WWJD. What would Jesus drive? The traditional answer is a donkey. Maybe it was a VW van, you know, that was humble and economic and roomy for 12, as you'll see in one of the slides here. There's a Baptist pastor in Pennsylvania, Jim Ball, and he runs an evangelical environmental network, and he doesn't think that question is really esoteric. His group launched a What Would Jesus Drive ad campaign to discourage Christians from buying gas-guzzling SUVs. And he argued that God would choose an environmentally friendly model like a Toyota Prius. But other theologians disagree. Scott Osler said that Jesus would tool around in a vintage Plymouth because the Bible says God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in a furry. Psalm 83, the Almighty had a Pontiac and a Geo. It says the Lord is urged to pursue His enemies with His tempest and terrify them with His storm. Although I don't know how a Geo storm could be terrifying. Another says that God favored Dodge pickup trucks. Moses' followers are warned not to go up a mountain until the ram's horn sounds a long blast. Or an AMC vehicle in the book of Exodus, he promised to send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Some insist Jesus himself actually drove a Honda, but he just didn't want to discuss it. And they cite a verse in John's Gospel that Jesus tells the crowd, I did not speak of my own accord. <laughs> so don't know if his Honda had bumper stickers that said, My other car is a flaming chariot. Honk if you love me or this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because he was an honor student at Galilee Elementary. <laughs> but in all serious, you know, since the day Jesus ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago, folks have had questions about him. Amen? Right. And not silly ones, but serious ones. Not what would Jesus drive, but who Jesus is. As Vicky alluded to, was he a good man, a, a great teacher, a prophet, or was he God? 2,000 years ago, folks struggled to answer the question who Jesus is. In Luke 8, 25, after Jesus calms a storm, the disciples say, Who then is this that He commands even winds and water and that they obey Him? And then after a long discussion in which uh, Paul exalts Christ and the preeminence of Christ to the church at Colossae, he tells them in chapter 2, Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And even John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was none among women born that was greater, we see today that he himself had questions. And 2,000 years later, little has changed. Folks still question who Jesus is. Maybe there's even somebody in here this morning that is struggling with that struggling with who Jesus is and how He works in our lives. And so when we look at this story this morning and we see John struggling, Jesus didn't ridicule him, He didn't mock him, He didn't condemn him, He didn't just dismiss His questions and doubts, He showed compassion. His heart went out to John as it does to us today. 
And He continues to provide us as He did with John with overwhelming empirical and scriptural evidence that He is God. And He still tells us today, happy is the man who never loses faith in Me. And so stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke 7, 18-35. Luke writes, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Father, thank you that we can hold a copy of it today. And Father, we can look into this story of John the Baptist and how he was perplexed. And Father, how someone here today may be perplexed by who Jesus is and how Jesus or God works in their life, Father. And so I pray that you will just speak to them through me this morning. Just rain your spirit upon this place, Father, that we would be convicted to leave here different than we walked in. We ask this now in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. So our first order of business, as always, is to set some context. Jesus' ministry is expanding and John's is literally in prison. Luke has already referenced this. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, remember I said that Luke does not write chronological. He's writing topically. And so he says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And Mark fills in the details. If you want a cross-reference in your Bible, look Mark 6, 14 to 20. It says that John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful 
for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. And so give it to him straight, John's in prison because he had a moral backbone to condemn Herod's marriage to Herodias, who was Herod's one-time sister-in-law. You know, that we could stop and have some application right there. It may very well come that there may be a time very soon your pastor could be thrown into jail for preaching the Word of God. And that's basically why John is in jail, because he has the moral backbone to stand up and say, this is the Word of God, and I'm not going to back down from it. And so, the Greek there in Mark 6, had been saying, means that he had repeatedly... Not one time, but repeatedly told Herod that his marriage was contrary to Mosaic law and it was wrong. And so John is incarcerated in the dungeon of Macheris. It's a desert palace perched on a high ridge by the Dead Sea. I mean, you cannot think of a worse place for a man of the wilderness in the open to be. And in Mark's account, it says that he was bound, he was literally fettered to the wall. I mean, can you imagine? Any of you just love being outdoors, hunting, fishing, camping? Now, could you imagine literally being tied to the wall in a palace that is by the sea and there's just no way you can even move a muscle? And so he's literally tied to a wall and he's getting reports back from his disciples about Jesus' ministry and he becomes perplexed because it didn't jive with what his twofold prophecy was that Jesus would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Think about it. The Romans are still in control. Herod and Herodias are living in comfort. The Pharisees and scribes are just as arrogant and self-righteous as they ever were. And so here's John tied to a wall and he's got all these questions about Jesus and Jesus isn't sending anybody to help get him out. He's disappointed in how God is working in his life. He's puzzled and perplexed over who Jesus is. And so he sends questions to Jesus about him. And so what would Jesus do? What would he say? And so the passage really ties around three questions. And so that's how I've tied this passage around three questions. One John asks and two that Jesus asks. So the first question that he asks is found in verse 19. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We'll look first at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to John. So they're keeping him abreast of what's going on while he's in prison there at Machaerus. And what were these things that they were reporting? Well, the healings that we've already looked at, that he healed a man with leprosy, a man who was lame, a paralytic, a man who had a withered hand on the, the Sabbath. All of these healings, the demons that were being uh, excised, miracles that are going on, that there's joy and feasting, that they're holding a great feast for Jesus, and that it's grace and not judgment. In uh, chapter 5, verse 32, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that Jesus is not being uh, greeted with a warm welcome. There's fights, uh, if you would say, between him and the Pharisees in which the Pharisees are already plotting his death. And so it's not jiving with what John thought. And we would say it really wasn't going John's way, was it? And so think about your own life. 
When everything seems to be going your way, then what? It's all rainbows and skittles. Think about when your health breaks. Think about if you get a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis or cancer or diabetes or your marriage is in trouble or your business is struggling or you're two cents away from being no money in the checking account. And then what starts to happen? Things start to play with your mind. You ever had that happen and then you second guess your decisions? You know how many times the <coughs> devil has tried to put in my brain come November will be the start of five years here at Crossway. Do you know how many times the devil has tried to come and put in my brain that God did not call you not only to Crossway but He didn't even call you to be a pastor? And I take heart from what Dr. McDonald, I believe it was, said when we were at the Men of Memphis conference. And he said, Men that are pastors, I want to speak to you for a second. I have questioned my salvation a million times. Don't you ever question God's call to the ministry. Because Satan wants to fight you here. And he's going to question your salvation. He's going to question your commitment to the Lord. And guess when he's going to do it? He ain't going to do it when things are going good. He's going to do it when things are going bad and when you're most vulnerable. And so had John been wrong about Jesus? I mean, look back at chapter 3 of Luke. Listen to these words. And so you hear what John was expecting. First thing in verse 7, this is how he greets them. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath? Verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 16, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. His winnowing floor, that's judgment. His threshing floor, that's judgment. He'll gather the wheat, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. John saw the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus. He heard the Father, boom, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He pointed his disciples to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now he's second guessing because where is the judgment? Had he misunderstood it? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been perplexed by Jesus? Have you ever been perplexed by how God works in your life? Then you're in good company. Because John did too. And so he had to know. And so look at verse 19 and 20. Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? First off, why did he send two disciples? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15 said that the truth of a matter would be established by two witnesses. And so he sends two. And so secondly, is John wavering in his faith here? Some people see that. There's four interpretations here as to what is going on with John. To me, I think it is just the simple thing that, as we would say in the country, uh, what uh, John had prophesied and what Jesus was doing didn't jihaw. Y'all know what jihaw is? It just didn't go together. And so he's confused. And so think about this. If Jesus is the Messiah, and back in chapter 4 in his first sermon, this is what he said. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim 
liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So John's saying, hey, if you came to set at liberty those who are oppressed, why am I in jail? And guess what? If you've come to set those that free, how about you go get the key to this dungeon and get me off of this wall and out of here? And if you're the Messiah who, by the way, has a, is a king whose kingdom has no end, then why is everybody looking to kill you and not put a crown on your head? And if you're the Messiah, where's the fire? All I see is party. I'm expecting weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, and on the other, He's not. And so, John's circumstances are adding to the doubt, and it's just feeding the doubt. Go on and turn to Numbers chapter 11. You know it's not unusual for great spiritual leaders to have days of doubt. We always joke as a family that one of Matthew's famous sayings one time was when we were irritating him and getting on his nerves, he told us that I quit the family. Do you know that some of God's greatest people have said that? I quit the family. I'm done with this whole Christian thing. Moses, number 11. It says in verse 10, And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. You know, as I read through that, I thought, man, Moses got some gumption because I don't know that I said this to the Lord. I'd have been afraid it evaporated me right then and there. You know what? But do you see there a truth that this is free of charge? Your pastors are not able to bear the burden of this church alone. It is too heavy for us. That is why you are to do the work of the ministry. But then look at what Moses says. If you're going to treat me like this, then just go and kill me. I quit the family. Turn to 1 Kings 19. Elijah, you remember this? They had told Jezebel all Elijah had done. He killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sends a messenger to Eliza saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And so he runs. In verse 4, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Go on and kill me. I quit the family. Look at... Jeremiah says this, said the same similar thing. You can put a reference there, Jeremiah 20, and look at verses 7 to 18. But let me uh, flip to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. 
Paul says, For we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life ourselves or itself. They thought they were going to die. They were ready to quit the family. And so here's the point of application when it comes to others. Our faith, if you think about your own faith, has it not been affected by external circumstances at some point in your life and almost faltered and you've stumbled and you've changed potentially your mind? Well, if that's the case with regards to you, then how lenient should we be when other people do the same thing? But yet what we do then is point the finger and say, why are you not being stronger? Instead of being Barnabases and encouraging folks and loving on folks, then we bring down heaps of coal on them. And so think about ourselves. Don't beat yourself up because the Christian life is one like this. Do you not feel like a spiritual manic depressive sometimes or is that just me? I mean, I feel like I need lithium for my spiritual life to smooth out some of these ups and downs. I'm high, and then the next thing I know, I'm in my closet wanting to pout and cry and quit the family. That's part of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. And so we've got to stay strong the same temperature, whether it's the summer of prosperity or the winter of sorrow. Look at verse 21. So John's asked a question. In that hour, He, Jesus, healed many people, diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind He bestowed sight. You ever notice Jesus' habit of not answering questions directly? He then answers with a parable or a story or usually another question. Here it's a heart-stopping, eye-popping display of spiritual power. The King James Version says, And in that same hour, DRT, done right there, Jesus healed many. And he bestowed sight, that special significance of messianic implications. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't pull out his uh, lecture notes on theology. He doesn't pull out prophecy or astronomy charts. He just says, hey y'all, watch this, boom, I am a card-carrying member of the OMC. The one and only Messiah Club. I'm going to show you that I'm the Messiah because in this hour... Boom! People are going to be healed. And boom! People are going to be seeing that we're blind. And so look at verse 22. He, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. So he's going to give six evidences. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And so for a person who knew the Scriptures, and John certainly did, These things would take him back. I'll give you cross-reference notes that you can look at later. Isaiah 26, 19. 29, 18 to 19. 35, 5 to 6. And 61, 1 to 3. And Jesus quoted that last one in his inaugural sermon in Luke 4. And says, this is how you know I'm the Messiah because I'm doing the same thing that Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah hundreds of years ago. But you see, based on the Scriptures, here's what John might have expected Jesus to say. My armies are gathering. Caesarea, the headquarter of the Roman government, is about to fall. 
Sinners are being obliterated. They're being annihilated because of judgment. The wrath of God is on the march. There was no way John would know that there were going to be two comings of the Messiah. That He was going to come first as a lamb and then next as the lion and that that judgment would be separated by thousands of years. And so he's assuring John with empirical evidence. Here it is right before your eyes and scriptural evidence. Go back, John, and remember what the prophet Isaiah said of me. He said, you didn't miss it, John. You're spot on. And what kind of compassion and validation would that have been to John? And so Jesus' words set John to think about what the Messiah was going to be. He wasn't going to obliterate whole villages like the disciples said. Hey, Jesus, you want us to burn, call down a you know, uh, fire and brimstone on this village and annihilate it? And notice he didn't tell John why there wasn't judgment. And he didn't give John an expiration date on when he was going to get out of prison. Neither did he. So look at verse 23. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's not a rebuke, it's an encouragement. Because he's about to really encourage him in verse 28. Right now, he's come to seek and to save the lost. But it did not mean that judgment was absent. If some were blessed, you know what it then meant as a corollary? Some were not. And some were being saved through Jesus' efforts, then what did it mean that some were also lost? Look at John 3.36. Do you know that we don't need to add more condemnation on lost folks? They already got enough. Now that doesn't mean you don't point out their sins. But look at what John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God by default is on every human being that has ever been born. It's only by a miracle and His elective love and grace and mercy that He even picks any of us to have been taken out of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is on all of us. And so He says, John, look, don't have to heap down more judgment. It's already on them. Richardson said this, he said, Jesus might not represent the kind of God they wanted, but the question is posed whether He might not be the kind of God they needed. And so Jesus says, hey, you're blessed if you're not offended by me. That word in the Greek is scandalizo, which we get scandal from. It refers to, if you've ever trapped an animal, like when you would trap birds, you know, the little mechanism which the bird would then go underneath there and the little stick that would then drop and the cage would fall on them. That's what the scandalon was, was that little bait stick that then would trigger, trigger and trap them in there. And so he's saying, John, you will do well if you're not offended by me and not disappointed at how I'm working in your life and how I'm working in the, lo- in the world. And so think about yourself. Have any of you in here ever been offended by God at some point in your life? And maybe you can't get past it? Maybe something your spouse did or someone has done to you. Have you ever prayed for somebody and they didn't get well? Have you ever had this idea in your life, God, I have no clue why you are doing X, Y, or Z. I don't want to keep going back to this, but it's a very applicable illustration. When my wife was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, what, 10 years ago? 
Why us, Lord? Ultimately, he didn't answer, but the question is, why not you? We can probably handle it a whole lot better than a lot of folks could. But what we do, we get torqued off at God, we get mad at Him, and we stay that way for years. And you know what it does to our spiritual life? It kills it. It crushes it. All because we're disappointed at how God works and how Jesus works. And Jesus basically says, get over it. Don't be offended. Alright, so question two is verse 25. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Look at verse 24, the first part. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So what Jesus thought might happen is that some people would take what Jesus had just said as a rebuke to John, and he wasn't going to have that. And so having compassionately reassured John, he now through compassion commends him beyond any person ever born. And so he turns to the crowds. Well, who would have been in the crowds? Well, the disciples inquiring minds, the religious leaders, if you want to put in a note, John 7, 40-52. If you go and read that, I'll give you five people that were in that crowd, the convinced, the contrary, the hostile, the confused, and the religious. That's the same ones that have been there. The convinced, the contrary, the hostile, the confused, and the religious. And so Jesus says, you know, in case anybody has heard or would hear of how I just answered John's messengers, because y'all all know how church folk talk, right? They would get back. That he was rebuking him, he comes and commends him in the strongest way possible, and he does it by asking the same question three times. So look at the rest of verse 24. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The reeds there on the banks of the Jordan River would sometimes get five to six feet tall. So can you imagine a reed that is that tall? What it would happen when the wind came and blew it? It would just be like this, all over the place, wouldn't it? And so Jesus said, what did all you folks go out in the wilderness to see when you were going by your camel caravan fools to be baptized by John and confess your sins? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to look at all the tall reeds swaying in the breeze and John who was a man like that? No. He was a mighty oak. He was immovable. He was bold. That's why he's in jail. And so look at verse 25. He says, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So what did all you folks go out in the wilderness to see when you're going by your camel caravan fools to be baptized by John and confess your sins? A man in soft clothing? The word soft there means effeminate. So he said, did you go out to look at some sushi-eating, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan snob wearing Versace and Calvin Klein blue jeans driving his environmentally friendly Prius? No. I mean, you talk about a man's man. Y'all know the show Man vs. Wild? John shot the original episode. Amen? I mean, you're wearing camel's hair and you're eating locusts and honey. That's beyond anything I want to do. That takes a man's man. 
And Dr. Uh, uh, McLaren says, John's fiery words would have had no effect if they had not poured hot from a life that despised luxury and soft ease. And so look at the next part. Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yep. I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He said, why'd you go out there? See a prophet? They're expecting no. And in a way, it wasn't no. You didn't just go out to see any old prophet. You went out to see the greatest of Old Testament prophets, the forerunner. And Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1 there. And then he says the foremost. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I mean, you talk about a shocking statement and compassion. Dr. Hughes says this. He said, there is part of Jesus' heart in that prison with John. Part of his soul is tied up with John's. As John suffers in fears and doubts, Jesus' own heart goes out to him. John's more than a flesh and blood relative. He's his colleague in ministry, a role model that Jesus has looked up to and observed in action, an honest and brave-spoken prophet of God who has fought the fight and run the race. He was now in prison for the Father's cause and Jesus knew would soon be martyred in the same cause that Jesus served. Jesus loved that man. In Jesus' eyes, John was number one. Talk about compassion. And then look about, talk about compassion. Look at what he says of us. The one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Talk about a radical statement. Well, how is that true? Not in, in person, but in position. Because we're on this side of the cross, and John was on that side of the cross. And we can fully see God's revelation. Guess what? You've got a copy of God's complete revelation from Genesis 2 Revelation in your hand that you can read every day. John didn't have that wonderful privilege. John didn't. He saw a shadowy form, the cross, and we see it in full living color. Amen? I love what Dr. Barclay said about this. his notes on this. He said, being least in the kingdom is better than being the best anywhere else. If that don't speak to America, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an NFL star. I want to be an NBA star and I want to make millions upon millions of dollars. And I want to have a Malibu beach house. And I want to be able to fly all over the world and do this and that. I want to be a Hollywood movie uh, actress or actor. Dr. Barclay and Jesus himself said, you being the least in the kingdom is better than you being the best in Hollywood. And so look at uh, verse 29 to 30. When all the people heard this, and had the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What Jesus is really concerned about was what the, his listeners had done with John's message. And it had had a twofold treatment. The common folks the people and the tax collectors by and large received John and Jesus' message of faith in Him and repentance of their sins and they declared God just. Literally, they justified God. They acknowledged that God was righteous in saying, you are a wicked sinner and you deserve 
to die. And that He was demanding of them, not as we talked about in Sunday school and as will be preached across pulpits in this country this morning, you don't just need faith in Jesus, you need faith and repentance. That's right. If repentance is not part of the equation, please explain to me the last book of the Bible in Revelation 2 and 3 and of the seven churches that are given, only two have anything positive said about them and the other five all have one single word in common and Jesus looks at that church and He says to them, Repent! We don't declare God just. Amen? We just agree with what He's already said about us. And I wonder how many of you in here today, again, I want to keep coming back to this, but I know that there's folks in here that are playing church. You really have not agreed with what God has said about you. I saw a video yesterday of P.J. Fleck, I think it is. He's the new coach at University of Minnesota. And he does inspirational speaking and he was talking about leaders and he said, I want to show you a great leader. Take your cell phone and pass it to the person beside you and let them open it up and read the last ten comments you made through text. Now I wonder what would happen if God took our last hundred thoughts and displayed them on the screen this morning. I guarantee you what would happen is that anyone who would stand in here and say I'm a good person would evaporate like smoke. You would declare God just in saying that He is righteous to say that we all, including this old boy, the cheapest of sinners, deserves death. But praise God for Jesus who came and emptied Himself and gave Himself on that cross after He lived a life I never could live and died the death I deserve so that I can then enjoy an eternity with Him I never ever in a million years would deserve. That's what the common people did. But do you notice what the church folk did? What did the church folk do? Well, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about. Repentance? I don't need repentance. I mean, I got a whole chest full of uh, Sunday school pens. Dude, I got a perfect attendance record for church. He says, fooey with that. They rejected the purpose of God for their life. Is there a sadder thing that could be said? What do you think dulled their heart so? I'm going to give you four things that dulled their heart so. One is familiarity. And listen to this because there's somebody in here that needs to hear this this morning. Dr. Hughes said this, it's all too easy to go spiritually brain dead when the prelude begins. So when Jimmy gets up here and gets ready to do announcements, when David gets up here and gets ready to do the music, there's some of you that go spiritually brain dead. To say prayers rather than pray them, to use the cadence of a confession as a rhythmic anesthetic, to mindlessly mouth the words of great hymns and gospel songs. Is that not what you say over and over, Brother David? Don't just say these words. Mean them. Listen to them. And understand <coughs> Now here's some of you, because I've already seen some of you doing this today. To nod off during a sermon. To glibly mouth evangelical creeds and then imagine that we're really spiritual. Second is shallowness. The Puritan theologian John Owen said this, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. 
Robert Schuller said this. He said his problem with Reformation theology is it failed to make clear that the core of sin is really just this. He said really the core of sin is this, a lack of self-esteem. So do you know that really just sin is just thinking ill of yourself? No, sin is understanding how desperately sick and wicked you are and how desperately sick and wicked your heart is. Third is self-righteousness. A man came to a preacher after the sermon and he said, you know, Pastor, I cannot swallow what you said about depravity. He said, that's okay. It's already deep down inside of you. You ain't got to swallow it. It's already down there. You know what self-righteousness does? It sends people to churches all around this country week in and week out and they listen to a sermon and they hear Jimmy plead with them to repent and they hear me plead with them to repent and they the Spirit knocking upon their heart saying to repent and they walk out and you know what they do? They puke out everything that was just said into the bushes. Because guess what? I'm good enough. And in fourth, sin's grip. You know why people believe in evolution? I'll tell you why. It's not because the evidence is overwhelming. The reason folks believe in evolution is that if we came from monkeys, then we can act like them morally. You know why people don't, and I've said this before, it's been a long time since I've said it, but do you know why people refuse to believe in this? Man, I was talking to Dan yesterday. He's got to write a paper. And he said he's got to have scholarly references. Well, here you go. Do you know that this is the best authenticated book in antiquity? We have more proof that this is true than any other book that has ever been written. But do you know why people won't believe it? Not because the evidence is lacking, but because if you believe it, you can't then not be changed by it. And you don't get to believe in it and then just live the same old stanky life that you used to live before. Old stanky. But you know the same danger exists today? Do you know the Jesus Seminar has tossed out 90% of the Gospels as inauthentic? And you know who makes up the Jesus Seminar? Bible scholars. Alright, our third and final question. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Dr. Bach calls this the parable of the brats. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what they're like. In one word, they're childish. Look at verse 32. They're like kids sitting in the marketplace and calling one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now many of you read that and you think, that makes no sense to me. Well, it was basically just a song that kids in that day would sing when other kids refused to join in playing with them. But y'all all have experience of this, especially if you're parents. Son, daughter, what would you like for supper? Do you want this? No, I don't want that. Well, do you want chicken nuggets? No, I don't want that. Well, do you want pizza? No, I don't want that. You've seen kids do this on the playground. Another group of kids will try and get a kid to come and play with them. We'll play whatever game you want to. 
Let's play hide and go seek. No, I'm not going to play that. Well, let's go play on the jungle gym. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. Parable of the brats. And so you know what some people do with regards to Christ and Christianity? It was the same thing we are doing. God sends John, and they say, no, we don't want him. So they send Jesus, who acts the exact opposite, and they say, well, we don't want him. And people sit with arms folded in churches and they say, well, I don't want the Bible because of this. And I don't want that. Well, I don't like that pastor because he preaches too serious. And I don't like that one because he tells jokes and funny stuff. Well, I don't like that one because he always has a suit. And I don't like that one because he wears jeans and tennis shoes sometimes. We're childish. And we reject everything that God throws at us. And so what did they do with John? He comes and he's a ascetic. He eats locusts, wild honey, he doesn't drink wine, he's a hermit, he preaches hellfire and brimstone on repentance, and what do they say? He's got a demon. Well, God says, let me send the opposite. So he sends Jesus. So what does he do? He's not an ascetic, he eats and drinks, he's not a hermit, he fellowships with people all the time. His method is not hellfire and brimstone, it's grace, grace, but it's still the same message of repentance. And you know what they do? They say, well, he likes our pleasures too much. He's a drunk and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you know, until this week, I did not know this. Brothers and sisters, I take that as a great compliment, don't you? Praise God that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But do you know that this was the most scathing of rebukes? Because Deuteronomy 21, 20 and 21, basically what was said of the unruly son there who deserve to be stoned, it's the same thing they're saying of Jesus. So basically they're saying, Jesus, you deserve to be stoned to death. Let me give it to you this way in an illustration. It would be like a movie critic. And he's watching a movie that has the same writer, God. And it's the same message, faith and repentance. And so God first tells it as a drama. And you know what He says? Well, I want more action. So God retells it. Same thing, same story, same message as action. You know what he does? Well, I want more comedy. So God says, all right, I'll tell it as comedy. Same message, same thing, same writer, and then you know what he says? Well, I want more drama. And again, brothers and sisters, it speaks to us today. Cassie and I just started Old Testament 1, and I'm going to tell you, Dr. Easley and Dr. Moore, the difference is daylight and dark when it comes to their teaching style. Dr. Moore, we're going to start at 5.30, and we're going to go to 9.30, and y'all might get one break. And it's very calm. He was talking like this, and he said, this is as wide open as I get. And I already told some of you, Cassie turned to me and said, you could learn a lot from him. You're at a 20, we need you at a 5. But you know what? They give the same message. They both spoke truth and they both spoke it very well. And I think it goes very well for us to remember this, that you have two pastors that are on the same page, that preach the same thing, that exalt Jesus and share the gospel and talk about faith and repentance and making disciples and this and that, but they have very different styles. Is one better than the other? No. Because they're equally endowed by the Spirit of God and called by the man of God. Jesus. And so look at verse 35. Wisdom's justified by our children. What does that mean? You know how I know the Bible is true? Because it's true for me. 
And it's true for what Jesus has done in my life. I justify the wisdom of Scripture by what Jesus has done in my life. And do you know that all of us one day will be justified? We will all be vindicated in our choice of Jesus because one day there's coming a day in which every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you better get in on it now as opposed to then. Amen? And so I'm closing. Any of you like Jeopardy? You know, it's been around since the uh, 1960s, 30 seasons, 7,000 episodes. That's over 7,000 Final Jeopardy questions. So I put up on the screen here this morning some of the hardest that I found. So the category is the East Coast. It's the only U.S. island allowed to use a possessive apostrophe by the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. Miss Darty would love this one. Anybody know the answer? Martha's Vineyard. By the numbers. Some of y'all better get this one or I'm going to take your licenses away. In the 1800s, Carl Wunderlich got this number by averaging over a million readings from armpits of 25,000 patients. What's, it's by the numbers. What's the number? 98.6. I wouldn't have wanted that job, would you? A million readings from the armpits of 25,000 folks. All right, the next one. Technology. After a demonstration of this, the April 8, 1927 New York Times said, commercial use in doubt. In other words, this is going to be a big flop. Did I hear somebody say television? Yes, TV. European countries. This nation joined the Warsaw Pact. 1955 and NATO in 2009 was alphabetically first in each. I actually got this one right. I couldn't believe it. Albania. I got this one wrong. Peninsular nations, it's the largest country in the world without any permanent natural rivers or lakes. Saudi Arabia. Two more, I think, quickly. Diplomatic relations are the four countries in the world that the U.S. does not have diplomatic relations with, the one that's farthest north. North Korea. Mythological names, the depths of up to 30,000 feet. Ocean trenches make up a zone named for this brother of Poseidon and his domain. Zeus. I thought it was Zeus, it's Hades. We don't know nothing. We know nothing. <laughs> no, nobody in here know life, do they, Jimmy? <laughs> No one's been trying to tell you all that for years. Flip ahead to Luke 9. You know the Bible is a book of Final Jeopardy questions? What's the big deal with Final Jeopardy? you got all your eggs in one basket, don't you? Do you know that there's a question that our very eternity hinges on the answer? See, John asked it this way. Are you the one who is to come? In essence, who is Jesus? Here's how it's framed in our day. Is Jesus really the only way to God? Or in recent days is this, do Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God? In essence, who is Jesus? Now listen to this, brothers and sisters. Do you know what an evangelical Christian is? I'm looking at them. An evangelical Christian is someone who believes the Bible is God's Word and believes Jesus is the only way or should but listen to this. 56% believe there are many paths other than faith in Christ to God and eternal life. 
Only 45% clearly affirm personal belief in relationship. Personal belief in a relationship with Christ is essential to eternal life. In essence, are you Jesus the one who's to come or is somebody else sufficient? And listen to this trash. Of evangelical Christians, 35% say that Islam will lead to eternal life. 33% that Hinduism will lead to eternal life. And 26% that even atheism will lead to eternal life. How in the world do you reconcile that with the I am statements? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You don't get there by Islam and you don't get there by Buddha. So how do we respond? might have our doubts. We might be perplexed like John. You might even get ridiculed and imprisoned and maybe in coming days beheaded because we Christians are too narrow-minded. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said, one of the greatest thinkers and theologians of our time. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Luke 9. Who do the crowds say that I am? But who do you say that I am. And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the only final jeopardy answer that is going to be sufficient on the day of judgment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this time to come together and just worship you today. Father, oh, how you have blessed us. Father, recently in just the great times of worship that you have given us and so we praise you for that and we thank you for that we thank you father as we sang earlier that this is the blood-bought church it isn't the church that i started it in the church that jimmy started it in the church that coach started it in the church that greg gilbert started it's the church that jesus christ bled and died for and so we thank you for that i pray father as we come to this time of invitation that someone here today needs to place their faith in christ and repent of their sins that you would call them today, open their ears and their heart, Father, to receive what you have for them, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. I don't think I said it earlier, but think about this. I had it in my notes and I probably skipped it. Do you know what we think of ourselves or what others think of us is not as important as what God thinks? That was basically... Jesus' word to John. God's word is precise in its estimation of every person that has ever lived. Listen to this. Your heart, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
Your words. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their deeds. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known the conclusion. This is from Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so as Paul cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I tell you who's going to deliver you from your body of death, and that is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what should you do? You've got to relinquish all goodness. You're not good. As Paul says, And the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. That's what God has done for us through Jesus is justify the ungodly. And so what must we do? In response to that, Paul clearly says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you today need to call on the name of the Lord. Put your faith and your trust in Him and repent of your sins. Maybe something I've said today has struck and you just want to come here and me pray for you, pray with you. If God's calling you to join Crossway, if you've been a believer in Christ for a while but never followed through in believer's baptism, listen to the Spirit as we sing. Let's all stand. Page 305. Let's stand. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back.